Hey, you're listening to Next Platform Radio for March 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Nicole Hemsoth. On today's edition, among many other things, we'll be talking in depth about Honeywell's announcement that they'll be bringing the, quote, most powerful quantum computer, end quote, to market. That's a tricky title to proclaim because it's not necessarily based on the mainstream metric of quantum achievement, the one that we all talk about anyway, which is the qubit count and the connected qubit count. To get to the heart of this, we'll talk with Tony Utley, who is Honeywell's president of Quantum Solutions. But first, we'll take a look at a few key news items from the last 24 hours and talk to some of those involved, including Mellanox about today's acquisition of Titan IC, IR Labs about its future in military and government following further strategic funding, this time from Lockheed Martin Ventures. We'll also speak with Darwin AI about the state of the black box problem in neural networks and where explainability will continue to matter even more. But we'll start today with some insight around another item of news, the unveiling of startup Ampere's 80-core server processor, with our own Timothy Prickett-Morgan, who just wrote an incredibly detailed piece after an in-depth conversation with Ampere's Renee James. That, That article, by the way, is live on Next Platform now, so do go take a look. Tim, this is an interesting startup. Uh, where where do you think all this is going? I, I definitely encourage people to at least get a primer first and and read what Ampere is doing. I mean, they're they're focusing specifically on on the hyperscale market. I mean, and, and nobody really builds a chip that doesn't include that. But to go after that market, that seems like probably not a bad idea. So, so what are your thoughts here? Well, the first thing is that we've been waiting for somebody to be credible. Uh, with something that the hyperscalers would buy. Um, Marvell has done a pretty good job with Thunder X2. But as far as we know, Microsoft is the only one of the hyperscalers that's using their chip in production in any kind of high volume. Or it's not even high volume, reasonable volume. Um, And some of the other players that were aimed at uh, the hyperscalers and cloud builders aren't here anymore. Qualcomm was clearly aiming at that market and decided to exit the business. Samsung was thinking about going for that business and decided not to do it. AMD did the same thing. So we don't have somebody who's designing the kind of chip that these guys want. They're not as concerned with massive amounts of vector computing. They want high energy throughput. They want reasonably high single-threaded performance. Um, They want some math capabilities, but they're more interested in mixed precision than lots of high precision floating point, mixed precision on integer as well. So they can do inference as well as various kinds of compute in their data center farms. Uh, You know, as they as they change their applications, this thing will still be useful. It's not kind of put into one job. This does inference. You know, they don't want to get stuck in those ways when you're building a cloud or if you're a hyperscaler with various workloads running on your iron. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is this thing is designed to provide a kind of isolation and performance uh, guarantee that we don't see with other kinds of processors. So for instance, uh, if you have a lot of threading on the processor, it gets harder and harder to guarantee that multiple workloads running on from multiple customers side by side on a server are going to behave the same way every time they run. They often interfere with each other. It's called the noisy neighbor problem. This thing says, we're not going to do any threading. We're just going to have cores, and we're going to put 80 of them on a a chip, which is a big number. They're going to be fairly hefty cores, and we're going to do everything we can to keep those things fed with lots of bandwidth coming in and out of the machine. This has much more memory bandwidth than a Xeon processor offers today. It has much more I.O. bandwidth than a Xeon processor has today. Um, and you can use it in one socket or two socket servers, and you can plug in lots of accelerators. So it also has support for the C6 protocol for linking chips together into a NUMA configuration so they can share share memory. It also has uh, those C6 ports can be used to plug in FPGA accelerators and other kinds of accelerators that will eventually support that protocol. So this is this is something they can deploy in a lot of different ways. So for those who haven't read it yet, though, you have a very, I think, clever subhead in here called uh, No Skewing 
S-K-U-I-N-G, no skewing the customer. What? Explain what you mean. So one of the things about Intel's product line, and they have, I don't, I can't even keep track of how many different processors they have without getting my spreadsheets out. But as they change different features of the processor family, and there's only three physical chips, one with 10 cores, one with 18 cores, and one with 28 cores. But as you want different features, I want large memory instead of small memory capacities. Uh, you want different interconnects between the speeds between the processors themselves um, and other things like that, that they dial up and down, you pay for them. They, you know, the, the SKUs are more expensive or they have a supplemental feature they put on them to address large memory. They had to cut some of those prices, by the way, in January because of the competition that AMD is bringing. But like AMD, Ampere has decided that everything's turned on all the time and they're not going to skew the customer, uh, as I put it. Um, with all these different feeds and speeds and complexity of the product line and, and supplemental pricing for all this stuff. So I think that'll help. Um, but what's really going to help them more than anything is just having more stuff. You know, they have 80 cores. They're not, they're probably not as powerful as a Xeon core, but they're going to get close. They have um, considerably more IO bandwidth. So they have 192 lanes that are free, PCI Express uh, 4 lanes that are free, even when they're glued together as uh, in a NUMA configuration, they use some of those lanes to implement the C6 protocol to glue them into a shared memory system. And then uh, individually, if you have a single socket, they have 128 lanes. Intel's only got 40, uh, 48. Uh, it's 40 on one side and 48 on the other. Um, and AMD has 128. Uh, all together. So it's, you know, they have a lot more IO bandwidth. Um, they have eight memory controllers and they can do four terabytes of memory on a socket and they can um, get 200 gigabytes a second of memory bandwidth in a single socket machine. That's a lot. That's a lot more that you can do on a Xeon. So, you know, the combination of deterministic performance you know, a core is always going to behave pretty much like it does because it doesn't have hyper-threading. Um, and there won't be interference between all the workloads that are running next to each other on the machine. Because the presumption is it's a shared workload machine some of the time in the cloud. Uh, different containers are going to run on different cores. Um, so, uh, And then the we presume there'll be a price performance advantage as well and a performance per watt advantage as well. But we don't know the pricing yet. Um, the wattages on these parts are exactly what you would expect. They range from 45 watts at a very low end part, uh, maybe with 10 cores, I'm guessing that, uh, up to 200 watts at an 80 core part. And the other interesting thing is that um, all the cores can run at three gigahertz. Um, that's their quote turbo mode. But if you have all the cores running at full speed, it's not really a turbo mode. Uh, on Intel chips, the turbo mode is the fastest speed that a core can run when the other ones are turned off. So, you know, and, and as uh, the people at Ampere pointed out, if you're turning your cores off, then maybe you've got a problem. That's not the smart thing to do with a core in a cloud. You should always keep it busy. Um, and that's, that's one of the central tenets of Amazon Web Services is you never turn a machine off. It's the dumbest thing you can ever do. You find work for it to do. So that's the same idea here. Interconnect giant Mellanox Technologies today announced that it's reached a definitive agreement to acquire privately held Titan IC, an Irish-based developer of network intelligence and security technology that helps accelerate search and analytics across a very wide range of applications and data centers. Mellanox says the acquisition will further strengthen their network intelligence capabilities as delivered through ConnectX and Bluefield families of SmartNICs and I.O. processing units. We spoke with Kevin Deerling of Mellanox this morning to talk about the acquisition. So, Kevin, Mellanox has sold FPGA-based SmartNICs for some time. This isn't a new thing. Uh, you now obviously have CPU-based ones based on the Bluefield ARM processors that you make yourself. Is it is it reasonable to think that Mellanox is hedging its bets on FPGAs now with the Titan IC purchase? 
Or are you using the expertise of Type Nice C to do both FPGA and CPU SmartNICs better? Yeah, we're definitely not hedging our bets with the FPGA technology. We did indeed and still have our Innova product line. We developed that. We invested in that. We thought that people would adopt that uh, and develop their own you know, technology and put it in there. What we found is it didn't actually work out that well. Uh, it's hard to develop chips, and it's hard to develop FPGAs. I always ask people when they ask, should we use the, the Bluefield ARM-based product or the FPGA and OVA-based products? Um, and I ask them, how many RTL, Verilog, programmers do you have versus how many C programmers do you have? And so just closing timing on an FPGA is hard. What we've found is that that FPGA is an ideal technology waterfall for us. And by that mean, we, what I mean by that is we develop things like IPsec and TLS, hardware acceleration. We did that in the Anova FPGA-based platforms. We shipped that to uh, one customer. It's relatively low volume because it's uh, expensive and it's power hungry. And then very quickly, we took the technology that we developed into the FPGA and we brought it into our ConnectX6DX and our Bluefield 2. So now we have that technology in a more accessible form factor, which is an ASIC based. So it's lower power and lower cost and higher throughput. So that's kind of the way we see that. We did the same, you know, with our uh, Titan IC engagement that's actually been implemented in our SmartNex. So we have it in our Bluefield 2. So this was a very strategic thing that uh, the technology is really what's driving us. So the, I don't think a lot of people were familiar with Titan IC necessarily. Uh, talk about why this acquisition makes sense more broadly here, just so we have some background on, on this company and its inherent value for Mellanox. You know, what, what's the new element here? Yeah, so it's for us, it's extremely strategic technology. Um, you know, I look at it, both the technology and the throughput and the team. So it's the three T's. Um, the technology is regex acceleration. And regex is a technical term that people who use Linux and uh, go in and they're looking for patterns, specific patterns, and they can make Boolean combinations of those patterns. So they can look for this word and this word, or this word and this word, or this word, or this word. And people are doing searches like that in all kinds of applications. So one use case is to do intrusion detection and prevention. So if you're looking for malware, you might look for a string that would indicate that this is a known virus that you're going to try to prevent. And as it's moving through the network, we can look at that and say, hey, don't put this right in the middle of the application. Put the quarantine this for a second and look at this more deeply because this has hit something. But the use cases for regex engines is huge. So if you're looking at uh, medical data or you're looking at patient histories, you can search all kinds of things. If you're looking to do, you know, uh, government terrorist, you know, protection and try to detect things before they happen and prevent them from happening, you can do all kinds of search. And what's really interesting for us is that right now all of those searches and the, the regex that's being done is sort of curated by human beings. In other words, if you're running a web application and you want to do, you know, advertising or something to a particular set of customers, you have people behind the scenes that are saying, oh, let's look for people that are interested. You know, I'm a fly fisherman. Look, look for fly rods and things like that, and certain words, keywords. Ultimately, looking forward, when we've integrated this into our Bluefield we can start to combine some of the other accelerations that we're doing, for example, with AI, and now use the underlying technology that rather than humans curating and deciding what the right terms to search for, we'll use machine learning and AI. And really, the combination is going to be incredibly powerful. So that's really the strategic imperative that allowed us to do this acquisition and say, this is it's more than just a piece of technology that ourselves and, by the way, others or our competitors might be 
interested to have in their technology. We think we can do more with it uh, as part of Mellanox. And then, of course, the team that I mentioned, you know, this team in uh, Belfast is incredible. It's just a really well-educated, talented team with an association with uh, university there in Belfast. And so we're excited about really the technology, the throughput capabilities that we get, you know, 50, 100 gigabit throughput of regex is unheard of, and the team. So 60-second challenge question time. <laughs> Will all servers eventually have SmartNICs abstracting networks and storage? If so, why? And if not, why not? Yeah, definitely all servers will have SmartNICs. You know, I always go back to Nicholas Negroponte, who ran the Media Lab at MIT 25 years ago. He sort of asked the question that said, hey, if you had if you could have a watch that was, you know, unheard of at the time that gave you all of these great capabilities and could do email and all of these things and it cost the same as a regular watch, would you take it? And the answer was yes. And today we have that watch. And the same thing is true here with SmartNix. If you can have all of your uh, service provider policies, your security policies, the flexibility of software-defined storage, the flexibility and scalability of software-defined networking. If you can have all of that and there's no penalty to the CPU, the most expensive part of your server, and you can get it for you know relatively the same cost as what a regular NIC costs, then why wouldn't you? And despite the fact I'm, uh, I've been talking about the fact that Moore's Law is slowing or Moore's Law is dead, there is still lots of progress being made and more intelligence is being added to those smart NICs and costs are going down. So in the, the foreseeable future, and I don't know whether that's five years or 10 years, every NIC will be a smart NIC. Every server will have a smart NIC. And yes, there'll be sort of, you know, just the way today people have gigabit Ethernet connections that are standard part of any server that you get. Often they're just not used. So I think there will be regular NIC connections too, but I think smart NICs will be the norm on every server. So if you take a look through the next platform, you'll see a few mentions of AR Labs, a silicon photonics startup we've been watching since their launch in 2015. They just announced a strategic funding round from Lockheed Martin Ventures. In the last few years, they've also managed to bring in more strategic funding from Global Foundries and Intel Capital, among others. We spoke briefly with CEO Charlie Wishpart about the technology and its potential from a government and defense standpoint. So we have we have a Moore's Law problem with compute, and, and everyone talks about this all the time. But we also have one coming up in networking, and that that is that we can't really see how signaling certes will be able to go faster, you know, than 100 gigabits per second. So, how does silicon photonics actually help to drive networking forward? Yeah, thanks, uh, Nicole. I mean, uh, for, first off, you know, we often talk about the uh, the end of Moore's law or the elongation of Moore's law. And in this particular case, you know, you start looking at different architectures, different system architectures. And at the center of most of these designs, whether it's in package or in a computing system, it has to do with the interconnect. Um, and the challenges with interconnect, also, you know, of course, are that, you know, today using electrical I.O., it takes a lot of power to drive, you know, massive bandwidth off package. Um, these are the kind of things that silicon photonics solves and optics in general. You know, optics was used initially to handle large bandwidths over long haul under the ocean and so forth. But as bandwidths have gone, you know, gotten greater and greater, that need for optical I.O., uh, you know, for shorter and shorter reaches is coming into play. And it's all driven out of the need for, you know, more bandwidth, more I.O. between compute to compute, compute to memory. Um, you know, whether it's in a traditional Ethernet or sort of InfiniBand fabric, or whether it's, um, you know, what we would call a glueless fabric, which is really a switchless fabric. Mm -hmm. Let, let's talk about uh, your work in the context of, of what others are working on. Uh, I think we've been curious the next platform about how your Terrify is both 
complementary, right? And and also certainly competitive with other silicon photonics efforts from Intel and HPE and a few others. How how do you look at this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, um, Intel Capital, Intel is an investor in uh, IR Labs. And in fact, we have a number of collaborations that we're doing together. Um, you know, we actually work quite closely with the uh, Intel Silicon Photonics team. Um, you know, in general, you know, we're addressing uh, a, what I would say is a forward-looking burgeoning area that, that Intel's not as specifically focused right on right now. Um, Intel spends a lot of time focused on making sort of the better, faster, optical, pluggable transceiver that would go into a switch, let's say. Um, we're actually focused on putting our chiplet called Terrify into a CPU or GPU package and bringing that optical connectivity straight into the, you know, as close to the CPU complex as possible. Now, you know, the way we do this is with a technology that Intel hasn't perfected um, that creates the, you know, very, very dense bandwidth capability. Um, and we're the world leaders there. So in terms of our collaboration, um, you know, we treat our chiplet as a black box. That's our IP, you know, there's inputs and outputs. But in terms of packaging and the difficulties and challenges around packaging our chiplets in today's multi-chip modules, uh, we're collaborating very deeply with Intel. And in fact, you know, fiber attach is another uh, sort of, you know, challenging area. How to attach, you know, the optical fibers to these, these chiplets or these compute modules. Again, this takes a lot of capital investment to do it at high volume. And that's another area where we're collaborating with Intel. So we'll perfect the recipe together and how to do it. And then, you know, we can scale it out through our work with Intel and with others. September 2018, we talked to Sheldon Fernandez about self-creating neural networks that explain themselves. He's CEO of Darwin AI, a company that's spun out of research at the University of Waterloo in Canada that's taking aim at companies ranging from financial services to autonomous vehicles, basically any vertical that's using reference networks and trying to squeeze fast, efficient inference out of trained models. Darwin AI uses machine learning techniques to probe a neural net as it's being trained to build a foundation for neural networks according to very specific accuracy and performance thresholds. In essence, it's pulling data from a training and test set, and then the software decides how to most, most efficiently implement it. So we do encourage you to take a look at that piece. It's, it's interesting, but it, it's one of those things that um, is <laughs> it's easier read than explained in, in a short uh, time time space. But today he's published some thoughts on the black box problem of AI and how new research is targeting the explainability problem. And that's going to have increasing value. You know, solving that and, and being able to derive answers, that's going to be more valuable as companies continue to adopt AI. I asked him first today when we spoke if anything has really changed about the core black box problem in recent years. And if there's any hope on the horizon of making neural networks more transparent. So I think things have changed insofar as, you know, whereas the problem was nebulously, nebulously stated before, it was just some intangible thing that people knew about. I think now people are recognizing that you need concrete solutions around this. So whereas a lot of the talk of explainability, you know, last year and even the year before was, you know, this hairy fairy, it's a black box and we need to unwind it. Um, I think now there's the recognition that, you know, you need some concrete uh, engineering behind it to actually, you know, solve it. And, and I think the emphasis around the tangibility is, is one, of the, uh, one of the things we've observed. Mm -hmm. You wrote recently about uh, explainability and how that factors into this conversation. Can you describe some of your thoughts there? Yeah, so explainability is essentially the effort to pry open this black box and illuminate it. Um, and so there's various different techniques that um, attempt to do this. Uh, and one of the things that we tried to show in a recent piece is that a lot of these techniques are academic techniques where academics were exploring what explainability could theoretically look like. Um, and they were promising, but they worked in fairly narrow and limited contexts but they've been co-opted by commercial efforts and wrapped um, and claimed that they were they were explainable techniques that were fully formed. Um, so we actually authored a paper at NeurIPS, uh, you know, in 2019, so a couple months ago in December in Vancouver, 
where we came up with a framework for how you evaluate the effectiveness of these explainability methods. And then we compared it to our own proprietary approach and you know, demonstrated that our approach uh, is better for a number of reasons. Uh, we hope this will be the beginnings of some real commercial efforts around uh, explainability. How, how is this different from those other methods? What are a couple of the key technical differentiations? Yeah, so the, the, the key technical difference is really the IP that our, our chief scientist, Professor Alexander Wong, has been r- working on for, you know, four or five years. And it's essentially taking a machine learning approach um, to unwind the black box. So the challenge with neural networks is that they're so fantastically complex that you can't iterate through all the permutations to understand why a certain decision was made. So you have to take some mathematical shortcut, so to speak. And our technique lies in that secret sauce of using machine learning to take that mathematical shortcut and get a very tangible explanation. Now, the question is, how do you know that the explanation that you are giving the end user, in this case, the developer or the data scientist, how do you know that it's valid? And so in this paper, um, our team came up with an approach, a counterfactual approach, where once you've identified what you think are the variables, you remove them from the network's input. This is a slight oversimplification, but then you see if its prediction has appreciably changed. And if it hasn't, or if the confidence level hasn't appreciably changed, then you can probably say with a reasonable amount of certainty that your original variables that you thought were you know, instrumental in the decision probably were not. Um, and so using this roundabout technique, we can say whether or not an explanation is quote unquote good. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking a, a pretty academic uh, set of set of things here and trying to apply them into a company who, who seems most inter- interested in this like what industries are to you most concerned with this or is this still sort of a um, an academic problem yeah so it's in it, it's great question so it's those um, organizations that have furthest advanced with deep learning and are now thinking of moving it to production and their main concern is around the robustness of their models. Um, so to give you one example, one of the things we've, we've really grappled with in the past year was how do you take this academic work, as you mentioned, and turn it into something concrete that businesses can use? Well, one of the areas we're bringing explainability is in the, is, is in the realm of data. So the, the, the challenge a lot of organizations have is they have a tremendous amount of unlabeled data that they collect in the field, but they have no idea what which of those you know data points would be useful in training the neural network so using explainability we can do an analysis and then stack rank their unlabeled data and say by our estimation if you were to label this five percent of the data you know your network would be more robust so you need to think of ways to take this academic work which is very theoretical and abstract and you know, conflate it into a solution that is commercially valuable to your customers. And this is kind of where we're beginning with it. Mm-hmm. So on the develop- research and development front, what's next for you? Yeah, so what's next is actually turning the feature I just mentioned into something that's commercial, uh, a commercial platform. So we've done some early proof of concepts around it, and we've been able to reduce the amount of label data uh, anywhere from 94% to you know 60%, which is a real savings. Uh, but it's actually to take that and concretely uh, put it into a platform that people can use with without us. Um, and we were, of course, using explainability for our um, neural network efficiency, uh, which is commercialized and is, is in the field uh, for the past two years. Uh, so it's really taking the next rung of explainability, which is the data explainability, uh, and giving that to our clients. And then eventually the rung on top of that is for the end user. So explaining to a radiologist why uh, a deep neural network classifies something as cancer, explaining to uh, an end user why their mortgage was rejected. So that that's the end goal, but it'll, it'll take some time to get there. Very good. Uh, Sheldon Fernandez, CEO of Darwin AI, thanks for your time. Thank you. As noted earlier in the program, we we were kind of struck by the announcement today from Honeywell that in the next three months they would roll out what would be what will be the most powerful quantum computer. And again, that's that's not based on any metric that we know. That's based on the concept of quantum volume. We had an in-depth conversation with Tony Utley, who is Honeywell's president of Quantum Solutions. Stay tuned for that. It's coming up next. So this is interesting news, and a lot of people are going to see this headline 
uh, most powerful quantum computer and and walk away like, oh wow, Honeywell just did this. But it's it's a little more complicated because we we so often think about quantum computing power being defined by the number of connected qubits, right? So what what your claim to fame on this upcoming uh, system will be, it's quantum volume. So, so talk to me about the distinctions here. Absolutely. So it, it's quantum volume looks at quantum computing the way you would think about engine displacement size in a vehicle, right? It, it, it might be interesting, but it doesn't necessarily talk about the, what the capabilities of the vehicle are. And, and that's the same thing with just looking at the number of qubits. So quantum volume says, what is the overall capability of the system to do meaningful computations? And it takes into account uh, multiple parts. It absolutely takes into account how many qubits you have, but then it takes into account two other equally important pieces, and that is how interconnected are those qubits? Anywhere from just able to interact next to it or uh, connected. And then it also takes into account the error of the system, basically how accurate is the is the set of operations. And when you combine those three things together, you end up, it's, you know, it has a formula like you might imagine, but uh, when you do that formula, you get to the effective number of qubits that you have. And then, and then quantum volume is, is two to the N where N is the effective number of qubits. And so you can have if you have four effective qubits, you have a quantum volume of 16. If you have five effective qubits, you have a quantum volume of 32. Six effective qubits, 64. And it doesn't necessarily matter how many physical qubits you have if they don't turn into effective qubits. Right. That makes sense. Um, it, maybe just uh, to, to backpedal here for just a second, define define quantum volume. You You touched on some key elements here, but just for people that are you know, this isn't their thing and they don't follow this closely. I, I think it's worth talking about it because it, a lot of definitions that I've seen and even my own that I've written in, in a few articles over the years, it, it ends up sounding like a very um, nebulous uh, sort of arbitrary thing because, um, you know, it's, it's talking about what kinds of problems it can solve. And then you have this very specific number, 64 in this case, attached, which <laughs> just sounds like, I don't know, this is a seven. <laughs> you know, explain yes. what that number means. Sure. It really looks the size of the computation that can be done. It, it's a measure of capability. Um, as you might imagine by the term volume, it, it actually, while it's not just three dimensions, it really focuses on those three dimensions because it says how much computation can you get done with any particular quantum computer? And it, and it was not our um, metric. It actually was brought to market by a different hardware manufacturer entirely, and it has gained momentum in the industry because it does take into account the fact that not all qubits are the same. If you have a hundred really error-prone qubits, there's not a lot you can go do with that system, despite the fact you could say, oh, I have a hundred qubits. Um, and so what they tried to do, this group, was to say that if you if you tested by using some very specific tests, the, the computational capability of the system itself, it would give you as a result, the number of effective qubits you have. And then, and then that, that quantum volume is, is two to the power of that number of effective qubits. Right. And, and so it takes into account the fact that quantum computing is exponential in nature, which is why it's two to that power. Um, but you start to get things like 16 to 32 to 64 to 128, and, and you, you will end up having numbers like that associated with quantum volume. Um, one of the really big announcements is not actually the, the 64. It's that we are on a trajectory to increase that quantum volume by tenfold every year for the next five years. And the reason that that's so important is that that's where it goes from 64 to 640 to 6,400 to 64,000 to 640,000. And so at that point, you really start to see 
the significance of the kind of computation that you can bring with the the, the mm-hmm. capabilities of the. Can of you the compare that sixty four number now that now that we have that definition done with other quantum platforms? It it doesn't apply. Like we have to make distinctions here, right, between kind of the gate model and the the annealing system. So so break this part of it down, please. Yeah, so the the quantum volume is designed around gate systems, um, and I, I believe that there is only one other group that has formally uh, done the computation itself, which is how we uh, say we're going to be double what that number is. Uh, and but there is literature that exists for for other um, hardware manufacturers where you can basically take all the data that was done as a part of that paper and plug it into the formula. So, so the, the leading two contenders are both sitting at a quantum volume of 32, which is why we felt confident saying when we release our system in the next three months with quantum volume 64, it would be double the, the next best in the industry. Right. Makes sense. Um, also, by the way, just for some background, um, it'd be useful to define here Honeywell's evolution and and history in quantum computing. And and to answer the question, why is Honeywell as a company, I mean, you do other things, certainly. Why are you interested in this? Absolutely. Actually, it comes because of those other things. And I think that's where most people have some picture in their mind of what a quantum computer looks like. Um, And unless you've actually seen one, it's probably wrong, especially if the mental model is, it looks a lot like the laptop I have right now. Uh, To make quantum computers work takes uh, vacuum systems, like big vacuum chambers. And in our case, ultra high vacuum, where it has five times less particles in outer space. It takes cryogenic systems. It takes magnetic field uh, variation systems. It takes systems that allow you to uh, handle the vibrational stability. It, it takes precision control systems. It takes lasers and photonic systems. Um, those are things that Honeywell already had in our aerospace and defense business, in our oil and gas control systems, integration business, in our materials and chemicals businesses. And we actually took all of that existing technology and put it together to make our quantum computer. Well, you know, you, you could have uh, just relied on on other companies to do all the hard quantum stuff and just provided them with the the hardware and, and expertise. <laughs> I'm sure you know that, right? <laughs> we we got asked actually. We did get asked. Um, no, so Honeywell is you know those same industries that I talked about. Those are industries that are going to be profoundly impacted by quantum computing. Uh, the aerospace industry, the materials development industry, how you do optimization around uh, oil and gas production, those are, they will be profoundly impacted. And so we already looked forward and said, we're in businesses that are going to have that impact. We know how to do this technology. We're world leaders in being able to do complex systems integration. It actually just made a ton of sense for Honeywell to be uh, in quantum computing. And, and it was, it was the path that was probably more surprising than, than most, which is we have been looking at this and working on this for almost a decade. And, and it was, it was taking smaller steps at first, just to prove to ourselves that yes, we were fully capable of, of being leaders in this technology, setting more and more challenging milestones in front of us. And then about four years ago, we set a very challenging milestone, which was we needed to be able to design and manufacture our own trap, our own ion trap. And if you're doing trapped ion quantum computing, that is the heart of the system. So we designed and built our own at our own trusted foundry in Minnesota as part of that, that foundry is part of our uh, aerospace business. And we integrated it into a system and started doing ion trapping. And once we did that, we realized, not only could we be good at this, we could be best in the world at this. Uh, And that's when we organized for success around designing, developing, and ultimately releasing 
trapped mm-hmm. iron quantum computers. Tony, what's what's your role been in all of this? How long have you been there? And, and what, what? <laughs> this, uh, I've been with this all the way. So I, I absolutely cannot claim that this is my brainchild. I was fortunate enough to have two brilliant scientists in my organization that brought this to my attention about 10 years ago when I first came into Honeywell. Um, and I have been helping shepherd it for uh, most of my career here. And then last four years have been, you know, leading it exclusively to, to uh, bring it to market. I I can imagine this is one heck of an expensive uh, R and D proposition, not, not to mention all the, the various hardware pieces where, where you obviously have expertise and relationships as a company. I mean, this is, this is an enormous investment and I, I'm sure you can't speak to, you know, just how much, how much in terms of dollars we're talking about here over, over the last decade, but you must see, and uh, Honeywell as an organization must see a real ROI on the horizon. And I think that's been the difficult part as we look at this emerging business and in the few companies on the, uh, on the device side, right. Um, you know, seeing how all this plays out and makes financial sense for something that may be still seven to 10 years off. How do you look at that? Yeah, so we across Honeywell have a number of different uh, opportunities that we call breakthrough growth initiatives. And and these are uh, these are opportunities that we're going after that we know are not necessarily monetarily game changers over the next couple of years, but they are seed planting for 10 and even 20 years from now. And, and that's, it's because Honeywell, frankly, is based upon people who have made those same kind of decisions 20 and 30 years ago. And so we purposefully look for these where we know that we have a technological advantage. We have a capability to bring it to market. Our customers and oftentimes ourselves are going to be impacted by it. And so we will make these investments. Um, and we fortunately within Honeywell Quantum Solutions had the ability to take advantage of assets that already existed. I didn't have to go build a foundry. We already had a foundry for our aerospace business. Most of those underlying technologies I talked about in terms of cryogenics and vacuum systems, we already had in other places in Honeywell. So it was the, the biggest part was making little bets at first just to make sure that we really could do what we said we could do. And then being very strategic about uh, the last four years as we brought these, these systems mm-hmm. along to the point where we can now mm-hmm. release them commercially. Is there anything substantially different uh, from, from a device and, and system perspective here, whether it's the, the way these are connected or the qubits themselves or the, is there is there real techn- technological differentiation even among a lot of these uh, these different um, options? And there, there aren't many, or is there just right now? Everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to differentiate. You know, where where are we in terms of real uh, tangible um, differentiation among these systems? No, there are there are big differences, and and I'll give you a couple of uh, very real and and timely examples. Uh, so. Take superconducting as a technology where a number of, of big technology companies have, have made that technology bet. Um, they, they manufacture their qubits, and so they're laid out in a grid. Uh, and, and therefore, the, from a computation standpoint, the best, uh, I should say, maybe the lowest error is when they talk to their nearest neighbor, meaning the one, the qubit right beside it. Uh, and so what happens is algorithm developers will write purposefully algorithms that really take advantage of nearest neighbor. We don't have that limitation. We can physically move our qubits around, and therefore we have this all-to-all connectivity. When you have that, you write very different algorithms. Um, they Superconducting has very short coherence times, so you don't get a lot of depth in the circuit which means you have to have very short algorithms. We have extraordinarily long coherence times, which means that we can have circuits that may take, so quantum algorithms that have multiple, many, many steps in them. And in fact, when you combine those two things together with our controls expertise, we've added something that is right now 
completely unique in the in the market of bringing these to customers, which is we've we've basically put an if statement into quantum algorithm. We do something called mid-circuit measurement. So imagine a quantum computing operation going on and you pause in the middle and you say, okay, Qubit, I want to know right now, what are you? Are you a one or are you a zero? I'm going to measure you right now. And then depending upon that answer, I'm actually going to do something different with the rest of the computation. And the timescales that we're talking about are such that we have that both that level of precision control as well as that duration of coherence to be able to do that kind of um, differentiated feature. So when when you have those and you can offer that to people who are doing the algorithm uh, writing themselves, uh, it it really is it's a big difference. That that's that's really interesting. The the all to all is is a that's been something of a golden grail um, for for quite some time in, in this in this realm. So that's that's quite an achievement. Absolutely. And it's it's part of what was the, I would say the cornerstone of the announcement today was, it really is this um, this culmination of putting together this QCCD architecture for trapped ions, which it's been talked about for almost two decades, and it's just really hard to do. But that's mm-hmm. something that Honeywell does really well is complex system mm-hmm. integration, and so we we took on all the technical debt early on to be able to say, we know we're going to need to be able to move these qubits around. We know we're going to have to do multiple uh, combinations of of computations at the same time. We know we're going to have to have such precise timed control that we can have basically the entire run of the trap to be able to do our uh, our work. And so we built from the bottom up the architecture to do all of that, which got us to the point now where we feel so confident in our ability to scale. So when I when I talk about saying, hey, we're gonna release this at a quantum volume of 64, and then we're gonna be able to increase it at an order of magnitude every year for the next five years, that's not because I need a different system to do that. It's literally the exact same system that we will be releasing that has the ability to expand quantum volume that much. Think about it as a gigantic auditorium that you're only filling a few seats right now, but the whole auditorium was already built. Yeah, all the rest of the infrastructure was built around it, all the integrated systems. And right now you're just letting a few people in the door to make sure that you're checking everything out. And then you're going to start to, mm-hmm. to populate the rest Very of the interesting. auditorium. In our, in our last bit of time here, it, it's, it, I think it'd be meaningful to talk about software a little bit. It's the hardware side of quantum computing is certainly interesting, but Building a software stack to sit underneath all of this cannot be a, an easy task. Um, I, I, I actually think that's almost worth its own its own separate interview. Um, but if you'd like to touch on that now and also talk talk about the work you're going to be doing with the two software companies that you're partnering with um, to work with J.P. Morgan Chase on whatever interesting problem services. Sure, I will. I'll try to unpack that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, sorry about that. <laughs> and I'll start with. I'd be happy to talk about this mm-hmm. again. Uh, I love it. No, um, so we built a full stack quantum computer, meaning we have the ability to give an API key to someone sitting anywhere in the world, and they can log in via their laptop, send a job to our computer, and get the results back to them. Uh, so we we built it that way. Um, the software comes in many different layers that then sit on top of that. And I'll start by saying, first, the people who know how to program a quantum computer at this point are very special, and they're very few in the world. They tend to be called theorists, uh, hybrid mathematician physicists. Um, and you can almost think about them as having to program in the machine language that there hasn't been yet that abstraction layer put on top where kind of the more educated layperson can do it. That's, that's not, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and so what happens today is you have to find people who know how to do that algorithm development. We have our own group of theorists. Uh, fortunately, JP Morgan Chase is one of the forward leaning companies that has a group of people who know how to program in quantum computing. Uh, but we're also partnering, as you as you heard in the announcement, uh, with companies like 
Cambridge Quantum Computing and Zapata Computing, where they bring both a software uh, architecture and platform capability combined with their own algorithm developers, their own theorists. And what they do is help bridge that gap between companies that they know they have a business problem that they would like to tackle with quantum computing, but they need the help in translating that to the math and then the algorithm that could actually run on a quantum computer. And our thanks to Tony Utley, Honeywell's president of Quantum Solutions, for that great interview. So just just a quick thought here to close the program. We mentioned yesterday that one of the more important events on our calendar, the Open Compute Summit, was canceled due to, obviously, coronavirus concerns. At that time yesterday, the GPU Technology Conference, GTC, had not canceled, but since has. Uh, instead of a traditional GTC, Jensen will give his keynote via live stream. Uh, by the way, we do expect him to make some key announcements, including possibly a new GP, GPU accelerator, uh, probably some server line updates and such. Uh, just an educated guess there. Um, but as we've talked to people about this, we're finding there are some seriously mixed feelings about an online event. Um, certainly no one thinks it's the same experience. And it's not just a matter of, of um, you know, the energy that you get during these things and, and of course, the networking. It's, it's the whole thing. It's, it's the being there part. As more of these conferences cancel, and we have obviously no idea how long this is going to continue. I mean, we have, we've, we've seen events canceling as far out now as September, which seems extreme or reasonable. I don't think anyone knows. We're all just taking our our best stab at (laughs) predicting the future, but we're going to get a good sense here in the near future of how important the content of an event is over the networking. You know, I I personally, uh, for a show like GTC, where I've been, I think, every year but one since it launched, you know, I love going to the different sessions and such, but I get to see my people then. (laughs) I really enjoyed that show for that reason. Um, We're going to just find out a whole bunch this year about why people value events. Because let's face it, you can get content anywhere. Uh, If there are slides posted for, and and especially YouTube videos posted of of talks given at shows, I don't go. (laughs) Period. And I think from talking to several people over the years, it's the same thing for everyone. If you, it's really, the content is great, but being in a room and, and unless of course the content is like something that you can only get in that room at that time, you know, it's really about the, uh, the experience of it. You can fight with me on that, by the way, you can send me hate mail <laughs> about my view on events to Nicole at nextplatform.com, but um, just based on the conversations we're having, this is uh, this is really going to be telling about the future of events, and we'll be watching this closely, especially since we have our own. And our own events are, we think, taking everything that that we sort of hate about going to events where the networking is so so. There's no powerpoints. There's it's all live conversation and panel and and interviews and such, but. You know, we're, we're watching this topic closely and, and of course we welcome your thoughts and uh, we may pick up this conversation later in the week, especially if we get some feedback about this. Anyway, final thoughts. 